You know, one of the earliest creeds that the church has and the church has expressed is the Apostles' Creed. And it contains uh, the, very, the very essentials of, of Christian doctrine. It, it has summarized the most fundamental aspects of the Christian faith. And throughout the creed, there is the refrain, I believe. It's a statement of beliefs. And towards the end of the creed, it says that I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, Tim Keller has pointed out this illustration, and obviously Catholic doesn't mean Rome, it means a universal church. But it is, has it ever struck you that the earliest Christians confessed that they believe in the church? Believe that Jesus was born of Mary, believe that Jesus suffered, died, and rose, believe in the Holy Spirit. Those are all very theological kinds of things that seem they would be in a creed. But believe in the church. But if we think about it, we, we know this is the case. Because the, the, the reason that many people struggle with belief in God and, and Christianity oftentimes isn't related to a doctrine of God, but it's related to people. The people that constitute the church are often the very reason people don't believe the claims of the Bible. Now, sometimes this is for illegitimate reasons, but sometimes, as we know, it's for reasons because those that claim to be Christians are charlatans, crooks, or imposters. So when I was looking at the text here that's next in our series as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, it seemed like a very good place to talk about what it means to be a Christian and what it therefore means to be a church. Because a church is simply a gathered group of Christians. God has gathered us together in this place today as those who are united by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And this text this morning is, is most appropriate because in this text that we have this morning, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 14, we see how Matthew became a follower of Jesus. We see how Matthew, the tax collector, becomes Matthew, the disciple. So let's look at this under three different points. How Matthew ceases to be a tax collector and how Matthew becomes a disciple under three headings. One is the call, the change, the cure. So three points. The call, the change, the cure. And the title of the sermon is A Meal with Sinners. A Meal with Sinners. So let's read together Matthew chapter 9. Starting at verse 9, I'm going to read to 13. Actually, I'm going to read through 17. As Matthew, Matthew passed, excuse me, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we need, why do, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and makes and, and, and worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. This is God's word for us this morning. You pray with me. Father, we are grateful that you've given us your most perfect and holy word. And Lord, we know that we need to hear from you every single week. And we believe that the voice of God is heard through the Holy Scriptures. And so this morning we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the text to us, that you would feed our weary souls, that you would nourish us with manna from heaven. Help us, Lord. Help me, in Jesus' name, amen. So point one, the call. Uh, by, by way of context, I'm just going to read to us again to remember where we're at and start at verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Remember, just to, get, to remember again, chapter 8 and chapter 9 are a place in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew where there's 10 different miracles. There's 10 different miracles. What Jesus has done in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is he's taught us, he's been the great teacher to us. He's taught us, he's given us the law, he's recapitulated uh, aspects of the law to us. And now in chapter 8 and 9, he shows himself to be the great physician, the great healer. The great miracle worker, the one that has authority over the things that he's made. And here in chapter 9, verse 1, we read, And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And we know that, his, that, that Matthew calls Jesus' his own city Capernaum. So this is not Nazareth, where he, he grew up likely, and it's not Bethlehem, which is the, the city of his, of his father. This is Capernaum, which is Jesus' home base for ministry along the sea of Galilee there, which means that when we get to our, 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 our text here in verse 9, just, just nine verses down, it means that Jesus is in his, his home base of ministry, which means that it's very likely that everyone there knew who he was. At least it's very likely that everyone in uh, Capernaum had, had heard about him. They, they knew that he was the great miracle worker. Or they knew that he was a teacher that was receiving a pretty significant following and, and gaining a, a pretty reputable reputation. So with that in mind, with this idea that he's in his hometown, this idea that he's in Capernaum, let's read verse 9 again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Jesus passes Matthew... And Matthew is just sitting down. I think it's an important textual point for us. And, and, and one way to elucidate that is that the other gospel accounts that have this story, Mark and Luke, say the exact same thing. 
In their versions, they call him Levi, and they say that he was sitting down. So why is that significant? Why is it significant that all three gospel writers, in telling the story of the conversion of Matthew the tax collector, tell us that he's sitting? Because it means that he was uninterested in Jesus. He was uninterested in Jesus. Here's the great teacher. Here's this miracle worker who crowds are flocking to. Jesus is is now used to throngs of people crowding around him. But Matthew sits. Matthew's uninterested in in this Jesus. Most commentators would suggest to us that Matthew's booth was likely along the, sea, along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which would have been the, the entrance point into the city, which meant that he probably knew almost everyone in town. He saw people coming and going all the time. I think there's, there's little to no doubt that he was just completely unaware of who Jesus was. Now, we should, we should note and learn something about Matthew's profession here as a tax collector. Tax collectors were Roman collaborators. They were viewed as traitors to their own people. Remember that his name in in Matthew's gospel is Matthew. (laughs) But in Mark and Luke, it's Levi. He's, He's named after one of Jacob's sons. The point is simply that he's Jewish. And he's betrayed his own people in order to take this kind of crusty profession on. Because this, this role of tax collector, this job of tax collector, oftentimes simply went to the highest bidder. And, and for those that were amoral, it was one of the most coveted positions under the occupying force of the Romans. It meant that you, you taxed your own people for the occupying force and you were allowed to skim off the top for yourself. And you, 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 you gave yourself this kind of upper middle class lifestyle by taxing your own people for the bad guys and then kept part of it for yourself. You drove, proverbially, proverbially which is one of my favorite words, you drove the nice car you lived in the nice house, you had nice clothes, etc., and all at the expense of your countrymen who were living in squalor underneath this occupying force. Poverty was, was, was rampant and widespread in first century Palestine. And here you are, sleeping with the enemy, taxing your own people, lining your own pockets. So, Really, the first three miracles in chapter 8 were about ceremonial outsiders, right? There was the leper, who Jesus healed. There was the centurion's servant, who was was a non-Jewish person. And then there was the woman that he healed, Peter's mother-in-law. But here is the truly ethnic insider who's at the bottom of the social pit. He's the ethnic insider. He's a Jewish man. But he's at the bottom of the social pit because of his amoral lifestyle, because of what he's chosen to do with his life, because he's chosen to live off the poverty of his own fellow countrymen. So, of course, to summarize, he is uninterested in Jesus, the King of the Jews. So what does Jesus do? 
Look at verse 9 again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Jesus walks right over to this, this, this social outsider, this ethnic insider, and he says, follow me, and the man does it. He gets up, he leaves his booth, and he follows Jesus. You have to understand how, how, how radical this act really was. To get up and follow Jesus meant that he was getting up and leaving everything behind. The, the word that Jesus had used that unlocked Peter and Andrew and James and John from their fishing nets and from their boats and from their parents. This word, Jesus now says to Matthew, and it liberates him from his collaboration. Just one word, and he's completely liberated. We are intended to read this and to just marvel at the uncanny power of this seemingly low-key invitation. The words of Jesus here are like a nuclear bomb in the life of Matthew. The words, and this word from Jesus has the power to free Matthew from the bondage of creature comforts. It has the power to free him from Roman colonialism. It has the power to free him from the grip of making a name for himself in the slimy financial world. So what are we to possibly make of all this? Well, it's really quite simple. And that is, every single disciple is called. Every single one of you in this room that is a Christian You were called through a decisive word from Jesus. A decisive word from Jesus that gave life to your mortal flesh. It means that the call of Jesus is completely sovereign and none can resist it. And the call of God upon his people is everywhere in the Bible. And it is oftentimes and almost every time coming when his people are uninterested, sitting, or going the other way. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. We learn of this man named Abram, who's living in Ur of the Chaldeans, who's a pagan. There's no indication in the text whatsoever that Abram was somehow seeking Yahweh, was somehow looking and, 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 and feeling his way towards Yahweh. This is what happens. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Yahweh, the Lord, says to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Verse 4. So Abram went. It's the sovereign call of God in Abram's life who was uninterested, going the other way, and and completely uninterested in the things of God when God sovereignly, according to the counsel of his will, according to his purposes and election, called Abram. And Abram responds in faith. Throughout the scriptures, but I'll just give us one more example for our, our time here. The conversion of Saul 
conversion of Paul the Apostle. Acts chapter 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if they found any belonging to the way, followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The sovereign intervention from Jesus, who, the Jesus who, who so identifies with his people that when Jesus' people are being persecuted, Jesus says that Saul is actually persecuting him. He says, why are you persecuting me? That's the word from Jesus. That's how closely Jesus identifies with his people. And Paul is radically converted in that moment. He's changed His life was set on a trajectory where he hated God. He was running from God. He was murdering the people of God. And God, in his gracious, kind, sovereign, loving care, spoke a decisive word into his life. And he was radically changed. Listen to how he described it in Galatians chapter 1. Paul says it like this. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. He goes on to talk about his mission to the Gentiles. You see what Paul is saying there? He says, God set me apart before I was even born. He called me before I was even born. He chose me before the foundation of the world, before I was even born. And at God's perfect, sovereign, appointed time, he revealed his grace to me. That's exactly what happened to Matthew here. At the perfect appointed time, the sovereign, powerful, decisive words of Jesus speak life into his dead flesh. And if you're a Christian, that same exact thing happened to you. Listen to Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Jonathan Edwards says it like this. He says, I am bold to say, That the work of God in the conversion of one soul is a more glorious work of God than the creation of the entire material world. That's amazing. According to Jonathan Edwards, the conversion of one of you in this room was a greater miraculous act of God than when God spoke the cosmos into being. He gave life to your dead flesh. You hated him. And in his kind and gracious and loving care, he spoke a decisive word to you. So that is the first thing that we learn about what it is to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. It means that God lovingly chose you. And at some time, the life-giving word of Jesus came to you. 
and his love and his grace and his mercy and his freedom and his power were revealed to you and he gave you a new heart and he caused you to be born again to be born from above. And you know what? On this first Sunday back in this renovated facility, we would be remiss to not speak that same word of Jesus this morning where he is now calling sinners to follow him. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus this morning, he is giving you a decisive word. Follow me. Leave your nets, leave your booth, leave your family, leave your profession, leave whatever it is, whatever hindrance there is from keeping you from his life-giving, gracious power, leave it and follow him. You know what this means for us very practically as a church, don't you? (laughs) It means that if we contributed nothing to our salvation, then we owe him everything. If we contributed nothing to it, then we are completely his. If, on the other hand, we somehow, in in some kind of, some goodness that we had in us, made a decision to somehow follow him at some point, then there are aspects that we can keep from him. But that's not how we were called. Everything that we've received from him is of pure and absolute grace, which means that we owe him absolutely everything. There's not one aspect of our lives that doesn't belong to him. So again, that's the first point. But second, the change. With a Christian, we see a dramatic change in something. Let me read to us verses 10 through 11. So this is right after the follow me. Matthew rose and, 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 and followed him. And, Jesus, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we understand the nature of the question, don't we? The Pharisees here are concerned with the holiness codes of the Old Testament. Now, I want to suggest something to us this morning. Because I think, I think sometimes we, we, we just read Pharisee and we think equals automatically bad. Okay, but follow the Pharisees' question here for a moment because I think it's a legitimate question. I think it's a legitimate question. They get a bad rap, but they, they're, they're showing us something. Think about what they're saying. I, I think the very first chapter in the Bible that my kids memorized was Psalm 1, right? And what does Psalm 1, 1 say? Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of sinners or stands in the... Seat of Scott. No, no, no. You, no. Seat is last. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Interesting. Sits in the seat of scoffers. Think about the Levitical codes and the prescriptions about about not um, not being defiled by ceremonial outsiders, even. Even we know from from Jewish writings that are outside of the Old Testament, we know that tax gatherers were even barred from being in the synagogue 
because they were unclean. Psalm 26, verse 4 says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of the evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. So who's right? Jesus or the scriptures? You see the nature of their concern, don't you? And you see the nature of the concern of the Pharisees, and even the nature of the concern of the Old Testament, is that the concern is that there's the, there, there, there's the danger of being contaminated by proximity. There's the danger, there's the concern about being contaminated by proximity. You see their perspective. They think that contamination comes by, being, by coming in contact with something. They think that something pure becomes unpure by contact. They think something righteous becomes unrighteous by contact. They think something that's, that's, that's clean becomes unclean through contact. And, they, and, I, and I would, they, they mean it physically, but they also mean it morally, and they also mean it spiritually. So the desire is to create this, this, this wall around things, so to speak. But I think what we, what we forget, and I think what this text, part of what this text is trying to teach us, is that we really, and we truly are formed, we are formed through contact. Let me explain what I mean. So, I, um, I, went, to, I went to Bible college and seminary and, and all that stuff. And, um, but I would suggest that Maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 to 20% of what I, what, I, what I learned and what I know about, about following Jesus, I probably learned in the classroom. And the rest of it, I, just, I, I learned through meeting with other Christians. It was a tremendous blessing to me that I was in seminary while this church was being planted. Because I was learning way more about... <laughs> about life and theology and ministry from actually planting a church and walking with, with elders and, and, and brothers and so on than I was learning in the classroom. Because I think there's a principle here. I think the principle here is that we actually are formed through contact. We are formed. What Jesus is doing is he's sitting down with people and he's having a meal with them. That's why it's so significant when we've started community groups, that community groups were marked by having a meal together. Because oftentimes the discussions that were being had around the meal were more significant than discussions that were being had on the couch. That's why triads are so essential to the discipleship program of the church. Because we know that, that life and change and spiritual formation happens through contact with other believers. Which means that I am well aware that you are far more formed by working and living with each other than by sitting and listening to me for 40 minutes every week. Which makes me wonder, why the heck do I keep doing it? (laughs) I heard that. But doesn't that also give you some insight to understanding some of the dietary restrictions in Israel? Because Because... Because... because the writers and because God is aware that we are often formed through contact. And so he's saying uh, that, that eating with pagans and, and, and so on is forbidden. Because we're formed in community. But the Pharisees have another problem too. This is where they're wrong. They tend to see the world, and we all do this. 
we tend to see the world in the lens of pretty good and bad. We tend to see people and put them in the category and ourselves in pretty good or bad. Now, no, no, no one's going to walk in here and, and, and say that they're perfect, right? right? To, to err is human. But most of us put ourselves on a little bit higher pedestal than that. We put ourselves on this self-righteous kind of pedestal, some kind of self-made kind of pedestal. We see it, and the, the, the striking thing in this text is that we see it in a religious way, and we see it in an irreligious way. The irreligious way is Matthew. He's amoral. He's completely turned himself off to the things of God. He's not trying to find his identity then. He's trying to make a name for himself. He's a self-made man. He found his way to get his niche. Okay? He had, he maybe he had to sell his soul to the Roman Empire, but he found his way. A way to be significant. But there's another religious way to be significant. And that is to follow all the rules. And not just follow the rules because your desire is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength. But your desire is that if I follow God and I obey him the way he tells me, then he owes me. Then my life is supposed to go a certain way. And when my life doesn't go the way that I expect it to go, that I intend for it to go, one of two things has happened. Either I've let myself down or God has let me down. I've let myself down because I haven't, I haven't done enough. I didn't do it perfectly enough. I missed it somewhere along the way. Or God has let me down because I served him. I put in the time. I went to church every Sunday. We gave sacrificially. This is not fair. We either put ourselves in the dock or we put God in the dock. There's ways. There's religious ways of making, finding significance for ourselves. And there are irreligious ways of finding significance for ourselves. And Jesus utterly levels the playing field, doesn't he? What does he say? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Which were to conclude is that are there actually righteous people that he just simply didn't come to call? Or is instead he giving an indictment of the entire human race? That we're all sick and sore sinners. We are those who are sick. We are those who are sick. Which means the challenge for us here is to learn from the text that we read during our scripture reading of the Apostle Paul. Verse 7, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever I had gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. We have to learn to hear from Jesus and to learn from Paul's example that we are the sick ones. We are the sinners. And to learn to repent of the motives of our heart, not just repent for the actions, but repent for the motives of our heart, the reasons and the ways in which we try to put God in, our, in, our, in a dock and the ways that we try to put God in our debt. And the ways in which we run from God and seek to find a name on our own 
Those things are what Paul's talking about when he says, I count them as loss, I count them as rubbish. That's not where my righteousness comes from. My righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Jesus is aware of the spiritual sickness of the whole world. And so, no, Jesus is not pitting him sitting with sinners and tax collectors against what the Old Testament has taught us. Because doctors serve, they do not avoid. Jesus is not two-faced when he talks about morality and then eats with sinners any more than a doctor who talks of health and then spends his day at the hospital. You see what Jesus is doing. In Matthew chapter 8, we talked about the leper. The leper comes to Jesus and he kneels before him and he says, Lord, if you will, make me clean. Profound faith for one, but also a profound understanding of Jesus' power. He's saying, I know Jesus, you just have to want me to be better and I'll be better. If you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't say anything about speaking a certain way. He doesn't say anything about touching him. He just says, if you say the word, it's done. And yet, Jesus, it says in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 3, and Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus does not need to touch this man, but he does. Because he's completely bursting the old wineskins of everyone's paradigm. Because up to this point, here's the point. Up to this point, the pure become unpure through contact. The clean become unclean through contact. The righteous become unrighteous through contact, both physically, morally, and spiritually. But now, everything changes. After Jesus touches the leper, he doesn't go and get ceremonially clean. Jesus is cleanness itself. Jesus is righteousness itself. He is purity itself. He cannot be defiled. He turns the tables so that he doesn't become defiled. He doesn't, he turns the tide. He, he changes everything. Now everything that he touches becomes clean. My holiness cannot be defiled. You cannot make yourself fit for me, Jesus says. And then he quotes for us Hosea 6.6. 6, and he tells us to think about it. He tells us to think on this. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go think on what this means. And the commentators, one commentator, Bruner, suggests that this is the, the higher hermeneutical moral principle for the entire Old Testament. Yeah, Psalm 1 is there. And it should be read and understand and, and, and thought through carefully. And Psalm 26.4 is there, and it should be understood and thought through carefully. But, but, but Jesus is saying that the heart of God, above all else, the bursting of old wineskins so that new may come, is the desire to show mercy to his people. That is the battle cry of Jesus. And therefore, he's giving it to be the battle cry, to be the heartbeat of his church, of his disciples. Because here's something that's, absolutely striking okay this gets me excited when he's sitting down and he's reclining at table and he's with the sinners and the tax collectors look what it says many sinners and tax collectors came and reclining with jesus and his disciples 
it isn't just Jesus. It's now his disciples. He's reclining with his disciples, and they aren't becoming defiled. Because they've t- Jesus has touched them. He's made them righteous. He's made them clean. He's made them pure. He's called them. He's given them a new heart. He's given them his righteousness. There is no longer any need to go be ceremonially made clean. Because Jesus has cleansed thoroughly to the core, to, to, to bone and marrow, to the depths of your soul, his people. There's no more need for the temple system. They don't need to get up after meeting with these sinners and tax collectors and, and go be clean. They don't need to go slay a lamb and, and atone for this, their sin because Jesus himself is cleanness, is righteousness, is purity, and he totally gives it to them. The Pharisees, they thought they were good people and they thought they were bad people, but Jesus says, you're all bad people. You're all bad people. You're all unclean, you're all unrighteous, you're all dirty. And you need my decisive word, you need me to touch you. And that's exactly what he does. He goes around in his ministry and he meets with sinners and tax collectors and he reclines at table with them. And he calls us to do the same now because now, because now we are made clean by him. Which leads us to our third point, which I already went into mostly. It's half done. The cure. Where does this kind of power to live this way? Because it requires. It requires discernment. It requires wisdom. It's not a license to just go do whatever we want. It's not a license to just indulge the desires of our flesh. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the privilege to meet with sinners, those that, were, that are, are far from God, and to be a city on a hill to them, to love them the way that Jesus loves them. So how do we learn to relate like this? Well, I'll say a few things in closing. Verse 14 to 16 says, Then the disciples of John came in and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. This is very intimate kind of language. This isn't the language of kingship. This isn't the language of teacher. He doesn't say your king will be taken from you. He doesn't say your teacher will be taken from you. He says your bridegroom will be taken from you. He uses the most intimate of language that we can think of. That's the way that he cares for us and loves us. But then he says that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away through violent kind of language. And he's probably thinking of Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of his people. He was taken away. The bridegroom, our bridegroom, was taken away in judgment. And he was made to be unclean. He suffered under the hands of wicked men. And Paul will tell us in the most audacious of terms in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, the righteous one, the man Christ Jesus, who was purity itself, became broken, became unclean, became experienced the wrath of God for unrighteousness. He became sin for our sake. He suffered the due punishment that we deserve. He suffered outside the camp, experienced shame, experienced the brutality of life. So that through his resurrection, through his resurrection of the dead, he could make us clean. He could make you clean. He could give to you his righteousness. He could give to you his purity. And when we can behold that by faith, and we can see that with eyes of faith, it'll give us the power, it'll give us the resources, it'll give us the tools to love the world around us, to be salt and light to this broken generation. A few things by way of application. We are to be a city on a hill, which means that we... If you're a member of this church, if you're part of this church, if you're part of any church in this city, we are intended to be a city within the city. There is a, there is a, there is a cultural system that exists in Portland. There's a way about thinking about the world that is, that is God-hating, that is God-dishonoring. And our task from Jesus is to be a city within the city. That we would love one another the way that Jesus commands his disciples to love one another. And that we would love our neighbors the ways that Jesus did so that we might be salt and light to this generation. It means that we, we have to plant more churches. I was wondering if I should say that on the very first day of being in here. But don't get comfortable. I mean, I'm going to be comfortable because I'm staying. But <laughs> Matt's rust, don't get comfortable. <laughs> It means that we need to be salt and light and, have, and be a greater, a greater influence of being a city on a hill by planting more churches in the city. And two last things. We said at the beginning that we believe in the church. That's what Christians confess. Well, do you know what else Christians confess in that creed? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It means that we believe that the Lord Jesus has forgiven our sins, but we believe in the entire doctrine of it. Because Jesus and the New Testament writers are constantly applying the doctrine of the Lord forgiving us and us forgiving one another. If we are confessing that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we are confessing that, yes, we believe that vertically, but we also believe that horizontally. And if Jesus has made you righteous, he's made you clean, he's made you pure, He's made you his by his sacrificial life, death, and resurrection. And that will give you the power to forgive, to not hold grudges, to not hold people's sins against them. Lastly, if there is a savior like this, if there is a king like this who would come to us, sinners and tax collectors, fishermen and wanderers, and he would pursue us like this, what is there from keeping you to pursue him and get as close as you possibly can to him? 
to just get close to him. To, he, he desires to get close to you, just to, to, to desire to get closer to him through prayer or, or reading the word or, or fellowshipping with other Christians. That's how we get closer to him. He's given us very ordinary but powerful means to draw near to him. So commit to that today, to reading the scriptures, to praying, to fellowshipping with one another. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you sent Jesus to make us clean. We're grateful for it. We want to continue celebrating you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to sing here in a moment. We're going to sing, Come Ye Sinners. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitless fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. If you are a Christian, which means that you've repented of your sins and you've been baptized, then you are welcome to partake of the elements with us today. The way that we're going to we're going to do this is we're going to come down the center row, center two rows here, I should say. This is a little traffic lesson. And you're going to go out, back down the sides, and then come back to your seat like that, okay? Let's see how that works. And up there, there's only like nine of you, so you guys got it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. We just pray that we would worship you now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.